We're just a few weeks away from the beginning of professional baseball spring training. You were expecting something like that this morning, I can tell. And I was thinking about one of the greats of professional baseball history. He may be the most colorful figure of all. He is a Hall of Famer. He played for the New York Yankees. He caught for them. He played the outfield for them, probably played an occasional first base. His name was Yogi Berra. He's known for what has become to be called yogiisms. He would say things that were completely nonsensical sometimes, but he got his message across. Let me share some of these things which are very memorable. One time he said, I would give my right hand to be ambidextrous. He was a manager for some time of the Yankees and a coach as well. And one day during spring training, he told the players, Okay, guys, pair up in threes. He said, When you come to a fork in the road, take it. That's what he said. This is particularly memorable. He says, Always go to your friends' funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. And then here's one, the last one I'm going to mention this morning. He said, it's deja vu all over again. That's what people who know the English language would call a redundancy. It's something that was unnecessary because we know the word or the phrase deja vu is French for already seen. And sometimes we find ourselves in that state spiritually. It's Almost like we're experiencing something over and over and over again. And we can't seem to get out of that rut of the same sin or the same sense of uselessness in our lives. Well, we shouldn't feel alone if that happens to be the case in our lives. In the book of Romans, chapter 7, these are the words of the Apostle Paul. Beginning with verse 9, he says, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God. In the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. That would be in his parts of his body. He goes on to say, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Here's the Apostle Paul the man who had been serving the Lord greatly and effectively for decades when he wrote what we now know as the epistle to the Romans. And yet he found himself in a place of confusion. He was in conflict. He found himself wanting to do certain things and being unable to do those things, godly things, in keeping with the Word of God. At the same time, he found himself doing things that he did not want to do. Sound familiar? Well, it's a picture of the fact that the Christian life is set against the backdrop 
of struggles. Our struggle is certainly against the devil, because the Bible says our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But our bigger struggle is internal, as was the truth of Paul's testimony. He battled against what the Bible calls the flesh. And the flesh is the self-will. While we are people who are set free, if we're in Christ, from the penalty of sin, we still find ourselves embroiled in struggle with our own selfishness from time to time, if not too much of the time, any times too much of the time, frankly. But what we want to consider today is how we can overcome that. The command of God's Word, if you will turn now to the book of 1 Peter, the command from God's Word is very simple in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, as Peter writes to the believers, he is quoting from the book of Leviticus, the 19th chapter in the Old Testament, as we would call it. And it's a simple statement and command. You shall be holy... For I am holy. Today, I would like to ask you to join me in understanding what it means to be holy. We have all kinds of caricatures in our minds about what constitutes a holy person. Someone who is dressed entirely in black, never smiles, never has any type of fun. I'll never forget receiving a call from a telemarketer. Uh, a real sweet voice on the other end of the line, probably a younger person, young lady. She said, Mr. Woods, what do you and your wife do for fun? Well, she didn't know I was a pastor, so I said, as I paused, nothing. We don't do anything for fun. (laughs) And I didn't conclude why I said that, because we don't have enough money to do anything fun. But that's the caricature that the world has about what it means to be holy. If we go back to the Old Testament word for holy, the word holy means to be separate, to be marked off, particularly to be separated from sin, to be separated from a life that is centered in oneself. Instead, be separated in a sense, to be devoted to the Lord. The basic idea of holiness in Scripture, both old and new, the basic idea is the idea of being set apart for God's use. In that sense, if you know Jesus Christ, you are holy. How do I justify that statement? Well, this is how I would justify it. You perhaps know that often... Paul will speak to those to whom he wrote, and he calls them saints. And the word saint itself simply translates the word that is repeatedly translated in the New Testament by our English word, holy. A saint is a holy one. So we all who know Christ are in the sense fundamentally holy. In essence, we have become holy. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come to live in our lives 
And Paul writes about Jesus in this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. He says, Jesus Christ is our holiness. The word is translated sanctification there, but it also is the word for holiness. Sanctification being another word that could be used for holiness in the New Testament. Same word in the original language. So Christ is in us. And by virtue of His being in us, we have the power to be holy. The big issue is how do we tap in to that power? Well, I'm going to give you a few statements this morning and support them with Scripture to help us to get out of this rut that Paul found himself in. Get out of the rut of feeling like we just aren't able to overcome sin in our lives. That is a lie of the devil, and we have bought it hook, line, and sinker. Because we don't have to sin anymore now that Christ has come to live in our lives. Because He will give us the power to overcome sin in our lives. And indeed, answer the call of God in 1 Peter 1.16 to be holy. The first thing that we're going to consider today in this regard is that God's plan for you and for me is that we be holy. God chose you in me to be holy. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy. It was God's plan before there was any matter in the universe. It was God's plan from eternity that you and I, as children of God, would be set apart, that we would indeed be saints. We would be marked off to be useful to Him. Now, secondarily, there is a moral dimension to holiness. I don't want to exclude that and leave the wrong impression. What it simply connotes is that we are people who, having been set apart, are seeking the Lord, focusing on the Lord, and as we follow Christ, we're going to become more like Christ. We need to let people know when they come to faith. I try to make a point of this after a person has received Christ into his or her life, and I have access to that person to help him or her grow spiritually. I try to emphasize that the Christian life is not so much about do's and don'ts, although there is an element of that. But the primary idea of the Christian life is that instead of orienting my life around myself, around the world, I have exchanged that life for the life of Jesus. And I'm focusing on Jesus. The great Middle Ages mystic Christian Bernard of Clairvaux said this, He says, that which we love, we soon grow to resemble. So, when you come to know Jesus, you give up on loving yourself, and you seek Him, and you love Him. And you keep your eyes on Him. And He works to make you more like Himself, which is the personification of holiness. In the book of Galatians, chapter 4, Verse 19, we overhear Paul writing this to the Galatians. He said to them, like a woman in the pangs of childbirth, in labor, that's what he's saying, like a woman in labor, I find myself until Christ be formed in you. 
Christ was already living in them. However, Christ was not in the process of being formed because these people were still thinking the way they thought before they came to know Jesus Christ. And they were still acting out according to their former way of life. So God's plan for us is that we be holy. A great example of this from the Old Testament is the prophet Jeremiah. He tells us about God speaking to him, calling him to follow him in the opening remarks in his great prophecy. Do you remember what he said? He said, God said to me, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you to be a prophet to the nations. Now, this was rather scary for Jeremiah, and it would be for us probably if God spoke to us as clearly as he spoke to the prophet Jeremiah about his assignment to be a prophet to the nations. Here's why it was frightening. It would have been frightening if he'd been older, but he was probably in his early teens because he describes himself with a word which would suggest a boy who's still at home. He was a boy. He was not an independent person at the point of that call upon his life. And as an aside, let me take note of this, that God does speak to children. He speaks to children. He spoke to Samuel in the temple. He spoke to Jeremiah. So parents, don't pat your child on the head and says, now, now, that was just something that was not real to you. When a child begins to talk to you about his or her life in Christ, listen carefully because the Lord does speak to children very clearly. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible talks about how we who know Jesus Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now listen carefully. A holy nation of people for God's own possession. We are set apart as believers in Jesus. The kingdom of God is among us, Jesus said. The church is the outpost, the tip of the spear. The local church is the tip of the spear for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about a role with somebody's name on it. I'm talking about the living, breathing body of Christ. Men and women who know Jesus Christ, who are part of the bigger body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, but also a local body of Christ. God's plan for you is that you be holy, and it's evidenced by the fact that He chose you in eternity before time. To be holy. Here's another aspect of this. God's will for you is to be holy. You say, well, Mike, I think you just said that. Well, maybe I did, but I want us to look at this verse. We won't linger long here on 1 Thessalonians 4.3. If you are a student of the Bible and you have been in search at some time in the past to discover how many direct statements follow this formula. This is the will of God, and then a word or an idea is substituted for that. There is very little of that in Scripture. We know all of the Word of God carries with it the will of God. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, the Bible says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. 
Now, remember what I said about sanctification. What is another word for sanctification? It's holiness. That's what it is. This is the will of God, your holiness. And remember what holiness is. Holiness is being uniquely set aside by God for His use. That's what we were called out of darkness into His marvelous light for. That's why God chose us to do the will of God. Let's look at the second primary principle that I'm considering with you today. The first is God's plan for you is that you be holy. Here's the second principle. God has made provision for you to be holy. Thank God He has. It's not up to us on our own to be holy. He has given us His Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible talks about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, that process by which I or you as a follower of Christ becomes more and more useful to God, at the same time becoming more and more like Jesus Christ because Christ is being formed in us as we yield ourselves more fully to Him. So, He has given us His Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, talking about the new covenant, God was speaking through the prophet, anticipating something which would happen in history some six centuries later. And He says, I will put My Spirit in you and move you to be careful to follow My decrees. I will do that and to keep My commands. I'm going to do that. He is the initiator of the whole process of sanctification. He has so much more at stake in this than we do. As the 23rd Psalm was sung just a few moments ago, I was reminded how He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. That would be in the paths of holiness. For what purpose? For His name's sake. He did not save you. He did not justify you, make you right with Him. You were not born again for your own sake. There is great, incredibly great, phenomenal, actually, benefit which comes to us by His giving us new life and then justifying us, making us right in His sight, looking at us as if we were people who had never sinned. We have been made right with God, justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as if we had never sinned. That is incredible, isn't it? But more important is that He leads us in the paths of righteousness for His own sake. And we saw last week why that's true. is because He is glorified when we do that. When we follow Him. When we are led by Him in the paths of righteousness. And our purpose for being here is to be agents of His glory. So, He's given us His Spirit. He's also given us His Word. The Word of God is not God, but it is the Word of God. Next to your salvation, next to my salvation, next to our knowing God through Jesus Christ, next to that, Our greatest gift is this Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the author of Scripture. In 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter 
chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the Bible is abundantly clear. No prophet came up with the message that he had that is recorded in what we now know as the Old Testament. No prophet, but that individual or those individuals were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gave them the words which we now have encapsulated in the Old Testament. And if that were true of the Old Testament prophets, it is equally true of the apostles in the New Testament. And the New Testament is the apostles' teaching that God has given to us. So the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. But not only is the Holy Spirit the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit is also the interpreter of Scripture. The Bible says in the book of John chapter 14, these are the words of Jesus. He said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. Now, that simple phrase, which is used more than one time in the book of John, of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, it means the Spirit who produces truth. He's the producer of the truth, what I've just said. But in that context, he goes on to say, and that helper, the Spirit of truth, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything that I have said to you. When you, if you know Christ, open this book, And you come before the Lord, and you say, Lord, teach me. He will whisper in your ear, I thought you'd never ask. This is who I am. This is my M.O. I am the teacher. I'm the interpreter. When I was in high school taking English, I liked English, but one thing I did not like about it was when one of my teachers would give me the assignment to interpret a piece of poetry. And we'd have to write an essay on what we thought the poet was getting at. And it just caused me to break out in a cold sweat every time I had that kind of assignment. And I would try to read it. I mean, I could read it, but it very rarely made sense to me. I'm very prosaic, not at all poetic. And so that was the impact it had upon me. And then I started scrambling around. Then I would see if I could find some cliff notes at some bookstore, usually at the university nearby, that would explain it. And if I still couldn't do that, I'd find myself wondering and wishing, actually. I wish I could get hold of that author of this poem for help so I could understand it. He surely or she surely could interpret it for me. But that person most of the time was dead, inaccessible if alive. I mean, this is before the days of texting or Internet or Google or whatever, you know. Well, you know, when you and I come to the Bible, if you know Jesus, how does He live in you? The Holy Spirit has come to live in you. Your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, among other things, is our teacher. And consequently, He will teach you how to be holy. He will show you the Word. Jesus says in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. We have the means whereby we can be made holy. We have the Holy Spirit who is the one who sanctifies us. He is fully God. He is God. And He tells us that's His purpose, that we be set apart to do what God would have us to do. 
to be holy. And then He gives us insight from His Word. He tells us what His will is. He clearly spells it out for us. So God, praise You, Father. Praise You, Son. Praise You, Holy Spirit, for making provision for us who know You to be holy. We have no reason not to be holy in terms of understanding. But God has given us a prescription for being holy too. This prescription. There are three things I'm going to mention. There may be a little overlapping in these things. But they're worth considering to get a start on this living a holy life. The first is set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. In 1 Peter 3.15, that's what Peter writes. Actually, the word translated set apart is sanctify. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Do you see how it means set apart? Set Him apart. Put Him in His rightful place. What is the rightful place of Jesus Christ in my life, in your life? The rightful place, the only place really that is appropriate for Him is to be the central figure in our lives. To be enthroned on our lives is the way the psalmist writes in the 22nd Psalm. David says, the God of Israel is enthroned on the praises of His people, the worship of His people. Jesus is to be enthroned in our lives. We have to consciously and conscientiously make Him the Lord of our lives. He is already, but in our own way of thinking, we place Him in the place of lordship. I was thinking about the conversion of the Apostle Paul when I was preparing this message today. And as he talks about it in the 22nd chapter of Acts, he reports it. He's giving his testimony. And he talks about when he was struck blind on the road to Damascus. And as he fell to the ground and he was groping around in the darkness of his blindness, and God spoke, Jesus spoke to him. And he said to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was talking about the persecution that Paul was carrying out and orchestrating of the church of Jesus. He was on his way with orders to arrest at all cost, any Jewish person who had begun to follow this Messiah, Christ. And he says in response to the question, why are you persecuting me? He said, Lord, notice the use of the word, Lord, who are you? And there was a little more interchange. And then he says, Lord, what shall I do? This is the earmark of someone who is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We come and we say, Lord, I know who you are now. You've revealed yourself to me. Now, what shall I do? Not to be saved. He was already saved. But to fulfill my mission in this life, to be holy so that you can use me to honor and glorify you. What shall I do? And here we go, back to the Scripture. We read the Word of God and the Spirit of God speaks to us. We, in some cases, memorize parts of the Word of God. And we meditate on it day and night so that we may be careful to what? Do everything written in it. Then we'll be prosperous and then we shall be successful. 
So we're to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. Have you done that? Do you do that regularly? Do you put Jesus where He belongs in your heart? Number one, do you have any other gods before Jesus? This is the first step. If you do that, the others fall into place. Look at the second thing that I'm suggesting. This is not my suggestion. It's in the Scripture. We're to cleanse ourselves for God's use. In 2 Timothy 2, 20, the Bible says, In a large house there are many articles, some of gold and some of silver, some of earthenware, some for noble purposes, some for not noble purposes. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, in other words, ignoble is the word, purposes, not good purposes, if we cleanse ourselves from those things, we will be, listen carefully, sanctified. Holy is the word. Useful to the Master. Prepared for every good work. That's a desire that we who know Christ in our best moments for sure want to be filled. That we could be useful to You, Lord. There's nothing more pitiful in my own life experience when I just was walking away from the Lord and consequently there was no possibility of my being useful to Him because I was deviating from following Him. But there's nothing more encouraging than to know that if I will confess my sin when I become aware of it and I will return under the Lordship of Christ. I will ask the Lord, Lord, by Your grace, thank You that You have provided a way so that as Your child, when I disobey You, I can confess my sin and the blood of Christ will wash me fresh again in the sense of my everyday walk with You. And the Lord does that. So we can cleanse ourselves and repent of our sin, turn away from doing that which we know is out of keeping with the will of God. So set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. This is the first thing Jesus would say to us. Cleanse ourselves for God's use. And the last thing is refuse to let sin reign or rule in your body. In Romans 6, 12 and 13, the Bible says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Allow me a moment of interpretation. The grammar would yield this as the more precise rendering of that statement. Stop presenting the parts of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. The word translated instruments, it's a secondary meaning. The primary meaning of the word hoplos is the word in the original language. It's a word which has to do with weapons of warfare. So what has happened in the church of Jesus Christ in the United States, for sure, probably elsewhere, is there has been a disarmament of the church. And the devil is not responsible for that. We are responsible for that. Because we have presented the members, the parts of our body, to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. And the Scripture says, stop it. Stop it. You don't have to. I just can't help myself. If you know Christ... You can, by His power, overcome. 
You just need to believe what the Word of God says. I don't care what your sin that besets you, the sin that you try to get away from and you try to get away from. Remember who you are. Remember who dwells in you. Remember that if you come before the Lord and you admit sin, He immediately receives that and you repent of your sin, then He will fill your life by the Spirit if you ask Him to. And He will equip you for what lies ahead. Stop presenting the members of your body to sin. The parts of your body. Now, what would the parts be? Will it be my mouth? Be my eyes, be my hands, be my feet, be my ears. And there are many more parts of your body than that. That's a good starting place. May I make a suggestion to you? It's a simple suggestion. I'm almost embarrassed to mention the simplicity of it. You can figure this out, I'm sure. But if you would do this simple exercise, if you would take a piece of paper and divide it in half, with a T, just write a straight line, horizontal line, and then a vertical line. On one side, put body, a weapon for unrighteousness. On the other side, put body, a weapon for righteousness. And then begin to list the parts of your body. Don't overwhelm yourself. At first, start with one at a time, the one that you're most bothered by. And write it there. And note the ways in which you use your mouth as an instrument or a weapon of unrighteousness for lying, for gossiping, for sarcasm. Just go right down the list how you use your mouth. Then, on the other side, write down those ways that you can use the members of your body, in this case, your mouth, as a weapon for righteousness. And write down ways you can bless people with your mouth, not curse them with your mouth. Out of your mouth you'll be able to speak. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in the well comes up in the bucket, is what Adrian Rogers said. I heard him say that one time, the great pastor of bygone days in my hometown. And so, what's in there? Christ is in there, right? If you know Jesus, and if there's stuff in there that doesn't belong, He'll wash that out if you'll ask Him to. He'll flush it out. He will force it out by the sheer magnitude of His presence in your life as you set Him apart as Lord in your life. Going back to Romans 6, verse 12. Stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Here's the real key. I'm alive from the dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. Then Christ came and He raised me from the dead. The greatest miracle that happens today is when a man or a woman, a young man or a young woman, a boy or a girl is born again. Out of death into life. The same power the New Testament would indicate that was required of God the Father to raise Jesus from the dead is required to raise us from the dead spiritually. And that's what's happened in you. And you have that dynamic of Christ in your life. The Spirit of Jesus is in your life. And the Spirit of Christ will give you the power to do just what this Scripture says. 
to be a person who refuses to let sin rule in your body. You, we need to learn to talk to our souls. Did you know David talked to himself? Anybody in here besides me talk to yourself? I, I found myself talking to myself this morning. And it was a rather innocent conversation. But I was thinking, there you go again, Woods. Over 60 years and you're still talking to yourself. Well, I feel good when I read David talk to himself every once in a while. He said, bless the Lord, O my soul. Talking to his soul and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget none of his benefits. Look, we need to talk to ourselves. And we need to talk to ourselves based on what the Scripture says, not what we feel, not what the world says, but what does the Word of God say? Because heaven and earth is going to pass away, but His Word will never pass away. His Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. When people find themselves trapped in sin, I know every time, if I were to ask them, they were honest, are you meditating on God's Word? Are you reading the Word? And the answer is always, no, I'm not. I'm not. So we come back to the power that the Lord's given us, the provision He's made, the Holy Spirit and the Word. We can set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. We can cleanse ourselves for God's use. We refuse to let sin rule in you. You need to stand up to yourself. If you find yourself trapped in some kind of sinful behavior, or you've bought the lie that the devil would suggest to you that you are useless, you're no good, you'll never be used by God, that's not true. One short step from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. Yielding yourself to the Lord. Laying it all out on the table before the Lord. Saying, Lord, you know I'm powerless to do this. And He will say, yes, you are in your own strength. You are powerless. But greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. And you will have what you need to be holy. That's what the Lord would say to us. Let's now go to the last principle. God's plan is for you to help others to become holy. You say, wait a minute, Mike. It's okay for you. You're a pastor. Well, it's true. I am a pastor. But primarily, I'm a saint, just like you. I have a role in the body that gives me opportunity to speak truth, God willing, from the Bible that's helpful. You do too, in one-to-one conversations or small group setting. God has gifted you. He's gifted you by His Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses That's for all of us, not just for someone in a position like I occupy. Here's how we help others to become holy. First of all, by reaching out to them to restore them to the pathways of holiness if they've gotten off the pathway. In the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the Bible talks about brothers, those of you who are spiritual... Go find the brother who has been trapped, it's literally the word trapped, in sin. Caught off guard and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. When we who are on the pathway of holiness 
We are yielded to Christ. We are men and women who know what it's like to fall and to feel useless and to have the Lord come and pick us up out of the ditch in which we find ourselves. And let me tell you this. The only people, I'm I'm going on record, and I could be wrong about this, but I would be surprised if I am. The people who are described as spiritual in Galatians 6.1 aren't people who have never failed. Failed the Lord. Quite frankly, the only people who really qualify to pick someone out of a ditch are people who have failed and really begun to understand the grace of God. Like Peter, for instance. You know Peter? When Jesus said, you're going to blow it. And he said, not me, Lord. The rest of these dudes are going to blow it, but I'm not going to blow it. And what did he do? Within a couple of hours, he had blown it. And he wept bitterly at that. He was broken. He probably thought, I don't think the Lord would ever use me again. But the Lord made a personal appearance, one-on-one with Peter. He talked to him. And he restored him. And in the prophecy that he makes in Luke 22, where he was talking about the idea that he was going to blow it, he was going to deny Christ, he says, I have prayed for you. And I would have thought, if I was just reading along and didn't know the rest of the story, I would have thought, yeah, he's prayed for him and he's not going to deny the Lord. He didn't say that. I have prayed for you. But when you return, strengthen the brothers. He knew he was going to fail. He knew he had to fail so he could understand the grace of God so that when brothers had fallen in a ditch like he had, he could go and pick them up. When he went to the house of Cornelius in Acts 10, do you remember that story? This centurion who was a God-fearer and God-seeker, he was a Gentile, he sent for Peter. Peter came. When he got there, when he arrived, what did Cornelius do? He came and he flung himself at the feet of Peter, in adoration, actually, in gratitude. Now, what does Peter do? Before he had failed, he would have said, Grovel, you Gentile dog. You're right where you belong. But what did he do? He reached down and he picks him up and he looks at him in the eye and he said, I am a man just like you, by implication, who's been saved by the grace of God. So, We who are on the path of holiness now, we need to ask the Lord, show us those brothers and sisters in Christ who have wandered off the path and let us go and minister to them. And curiously, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this in Galatians 6.1. Be careful that you don't fall into temptation. It's easy to go back into a lifestyle, isn't it? That we preferred before we came to Christ, before we knew better. And so when you go to restore a brother or sister in Christ who's fallen into a ditch of sin, go with one another. It's not that one brother go, brothers go, sisters go. At least two of you go. So you'll be guarding against falling into temptation. Here's the second thing. As it relates to our being holy from God's point of view so we can help others to be holy by teaching them how to live a holy life. David's great confessional sin that we read about in Psalm 51. Listen to what David says, just a portion of it in the middle of that psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit 
within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Listen to this. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. For months, David had labored under the guilt of his sin. He didn't come clean with God. He didn't confess it. He didn't repent of it until Nathan the prophet came and told him a parable and put the finger on him. And he came clean immediately. He goes on to say, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Are you losing joy? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Think about it. Have you? It's due to sin, probably, in your life that you are still clinging to. And then he says, this is awesome. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Do you get it? Here's a man who had fallen miserably. He confessed his sin. And if you read the response of the prophet Nathan to him after he said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he said. I've sinned against the Lord. And then the prophet says, the Lord has forgiven you. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? Isn't there more I must do? No, it's to humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I have sinned. This is wrong what I've done. Lord, I confess it and I repent. And then what does David say? I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Now, this is no recommendation for you to go out and sin like David did or anybody else. It's not an invitation to sin. It's a statement of reality. We do fall. And when we fall, what are we to do? We're to come back to the Lord. We're to put Christ where He belongs, first place in our hearts. And then we're to cleanse our hearts. We're to disassociate with places and people, practices that are incompatible with the gospel of Christ. And the last thing is, by praying for those who aren't walking in the pathway of holiness at the moment. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, there's this wonderful benediction. And it goes like this. Many of you know it. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you. There's that word again. Make holy is the idea, remember. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you. May your spirit your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and faithful is He who will bring it to pass. May I make one more suggestion to you? You'd be wise to do this. You may say, I don't know how to pray for people who are believers. Well, this is one thing that you can be sure that God will answer. One prayer I know He will answer every time because He has bound Himself to answer. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence which we have before God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. There's the key. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know we will have what we've asked from Him. Find the will of God then you know you can get your answer. Believe God for it. We saw earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So when I pray, I could put your name in there. I could say your name. Father, 
May the God of peace sanctify, and I put your name in there, this person. Sanctify her. Sanctify him. May her spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, you have promised, and I'm just saying it for my own sake more than yours, but you are faithful. You called her, and you will bring it to pass. Do you know what would happen in this room? We have probably 200, 225 people maybe here in this room. You know what would happen if all of us began to do that? Just think about it. The sanctifying work of the Spirit would become rampant in this church. And it wouldn't stay inside these walls, obviously, because you're leaving. The church scatters after having come gathering to worship for renewal and fellowship on a day like today. But you scatter to your workplace. You go into your neighborhoods. You go to your schools. And all of a sudden, because you're praying for people and they're praying for you, what's going to happen is this. That place is going to become sacred because you're there. And God's going to use you and use others because you have taken seriously His command to be holy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the teaching of Your Word to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that You would help us to grasp the meaning of what it means to be holy. And Lord, help us not to be satisfied with understanding what it means. But I ask for me, Lord, that I would live up to these words which have come out of my mouth in my own personal life. I fall so short, Lord. You know it. And these people who've known me for so long know it too. But Lord, we come in humility before You and we're asking You to fill us with Your Holy Spirit. We want to set Jesus apart as Lord. We want to walk with a clean heart. Thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.